0: Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information about our ministries, head to calvarystgeorges.org. It is a challenging gospel that is before us today, as the statements of Jesus often are. His language right at the beginning of today's reading is particularly difficult. What does it mean for Jesus to say that you must hate your family? Well, a good rule of thumb when you're trying to understand a difficult passage of Scripture is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And in this case, you interpret Jesus' words with Jesus' words. Just a few weeks ago, you might recall that we considered the parable of the Good Samaritan recorded just a few chapters earlier in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10. That story was prompted by a conversation between Jesus and an expert in the Hebrew scriptures regarding what it would take for someone to earn eternal life, and the expert Summarize the law by saying, well, one must love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. And Jesus said, that's right. If you do this, you will live. In another passage, Jesus refers to those two commands, love God, love neighbor, as the two greatest commandments. However, the two are not equal. Jesus asserts that loving God is the first and greatest commandment, that it is the highest priority, that it is our supreme obligation. The second, he says, is like it, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, by saying that loving our neighbor is second, he's telling us at least two things about love. For one, he's telling us, he's he's granting an admission here that you cannot love everything equally. There is a priority inherent in love. Therefore, love God, as it were, before loving your neighbor. It's first in priority. But it is also an affirmation that in order for us to fulfill our obligations in this life, our loves have to be rightly aligned. That's, why, that's what Jesus means when he says that loving God is the great commandment. You were made to love, and you cannot love everything equally, so your loves have to be ordered rightly. Which brings us back to this statement in Luke chapter 14. What does Jesus mean when he says that we are to hate father and mother, wife and children and so forth? He is provoking us. He is provoking us to examine how our loves are ordered. Do we really love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is our primary commitment to a neighbor? Maybe a neighbor who lives in our apartment. Maybe a neighbor who shares our bed. Now, that might seem a bit abstract, so let me illustrate. Consider a married couple, one of whom is a workaholic. I know that never happens in real marriages, so hopefully this isn't too abstract of an illustration for us. But the workaholic spouse say they regularly work late. They regularly make appointments for times when they've already committed that time to their spouse. They forget about date nights that they had scheduled. They miss important anniversaries. What is the workaholic's spouse going to say to the workaholic? Probably a lot that would not be appropriate to repeat on a Sunday morning during a sermon. But among the things that the spouse might say is this, you love your job more than you love me. And they would be right. This is an accusation that the workaholics' loves are out of order. And friends, that's what Jesus is saying. If your love for God never causes a family member to feel like they are at best the second most important person in your life, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. And that brings up another startling thing about this passage. He does not say you cannot be a follower of God. He says you cannot be a follower of me. He is not saying that the priority here is love God and then love neighbor. He is saying love me before you love your family. Jesus here is not talking like a religious teacher. He's not even speaking like a rabbi. Jesus is speaking like a king. He is claiming for himself the very position of God. Your love for me, Jesus says, has to transcend your love for your family. And that's not it. Did you notice how in the gospel today that there is a line repeated 3 times? Cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. No one can be my disciple unless. Did you hear that? In that repeated refrain, he's actually giving three conditions for being his follower. The first is the one we've been talking about, that you have to love Jesus more than family. The second one he gives in the very next verse, he says, you have to carry your cross and follow him. He said this before his own crucifixion, and yet everyone knew what it meant to carry your cross. In Roman times, what this meant is you were going to your death. A criminal on the way to their crucifixion was not wondering what they would have for lunch tomorrow. They were not thinking about the business deal they're going to close next week. Their life is effectively over. So not only does Jesus say you have to love me more than family, By saying you have to carry your cross, he's saying you have to love me more than your ambition, what you want out of life. And then at the end of the passage, the third one comes up where he says you have to hand over all your possessions, everything you own. You see, Jesus is saying that our loves can easily get out of order. It's possible for us to love our family first and relegate him to secondary status. It's possible for us to love our ambitions first and leave him on the side. It's possible for us to love our possessions first and then give him a little something if there's anything left over. But Jesus says, no, I'm the king. If you are going to follow me, I must be your first love. Now some of you may be thinking, who does this guy think he is? And if you are, good, you've heard Jesus accurately. He he is provoking that response in us. Who does he think he is? I think for all of us, and for many of us, many times in our lives, we have to ponder that question. Who is this Jesus who is asking everything from me? And that's just what Jesus encourages us to do, to sit down and think about this, which is why, sandwiched in between those three cannot-be-my-disciples, you have these two little stories stuck in the middle. A little story about a builder building a tower and a king potentially going to war. See, Jesus, by these stories, is wanting us to sit down and think In both cases, in both of these two little stories, the story of the builder, the story of the king, you find people asking, what does it take and do I have enough? Those two questions. The question of expenses, projected expenses, and the question of resources. Do I have, what does it take to build a tower and do I have enough? What does it take to go to war, and do I have enough? What Jesus is saying through these two stories is, before you say, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go, you have to sit down and count the cost. And so here's the question we have to sit down with, you and me. Do you have what it takes to follow Jesus? To love him more than your closest family member. To prioritize him over your ambitions. To give up all your possessions for him. Now, it's Sunday morning, so you're like, the answer is yes, right? I and mean, That's why we're here. I wouldn't sit in a hot room for no reason on a Sunday morning. Well, yes, but we must not hear this question as if I were a football coach talking to the team right before the game. Like, come on, everyone, we're going to do this. Let's get out there and get it done. It's not the way the question comes to us, because, friends, the reality is We don't have what it takes to follow Jesus. I don't have what it takes to follow Jesus. Even asking those questions of you right now, I felt like this weight on my own spirit, like, nope. (laughs) No, I don't. Jesus is making an impossible demand, impossible. One that we cannot meet. And he actually, for our sake and by his grace, he actually depicts us in this gospel. If you wanna see a character in these stories that resembles us, it's none other than the king who is sitting there thinking, oh, I'm gonna to go to battle, but I don't have enough. That's us. We're like the king in that second story who is vastly under, under-equipped for what is required of us which means we need to do the same thing that that king in that story does. Which is what? We need to ask for terms of peace. This king does not unthinkingly press forward and try to make the impossible happen. No, he looks at his inadequate resources and asks for terms of peace. And friends, here are the terms of peace. This Jesus, this King, has done for you and for me what we could never have done. Where we have idolized our family and crushed them under the weight of our expectations. Jesus always loved God over his family, even as a 12 year old boy, busy about his father's business in the temple, even though it sends his parents into a frantic search. Where we have made our ambitions the inviolable center of our lives, Jesus' very life was a reflection of the prayer at the end of his life, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And where we increase our wealth in order to find security or comfort or power, Jesus gave away everything he had up to and including his very life, which he gave up for us on the cross. Yes, Jesus gives us an impossible demand, one that we cannot fulfill, but the good news is that what we cannot do, Jesus has already done. Where we fall short of what Jesus requires, this king has succeeded, and he succeeded for you. He lived the life that we have failed to live, and then he died the death that we should have died, that we might go free, that we might know grace, that we might experience forgiveness. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead to prove that he really is the king he claimed to be, and to bring about the renewal of all things. Friends, these are the terms of peace Jesus offers you. And this is the invitation that he offers at this table to lay down your attempts to be the perfect disciple, to acknowledge that you, yes, you need a savior, to find wholeness and redemption and welcome and acceptance in him. He invites you to entrust yourself and everything you cling to so dearly, your family, your ambitions, your possessions, he invites you to entrust all of that to him, to his work and not yours, to his goodness and not yours, to his sacrifice and not yours. And a funny thing happens when you do. This risen king has sent his spirit on his people to make us new to loosen our grip on the things that we've held so tightly. It reminds me of that story about the little boy who got his hand stuck in his parents' very expensive vase. And he went to his parents, Mom, Dad, help! My hand is stuck. And the mom and dad tried everything to get his hand out, they're jimmying it, water, butter, whatever, which is an expensive vase. And finally they're like, you know what? We have no other option. And they got a little hammer out, crushed the vase, revealing the little boy's hand in a fist. (laughs) And And the mom was like, why didn't you open your hand? The little boy said, "Because I was holding a penny." See, friends, that's what we're like—clinging on to these things. And Jesus is inviting us to freedom. He was crushed to set us free. Which reminds me of the great words of C.S. Lewis at the end of *Mere Christianity*. And I close with this. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay. But give yourself up and trust yourself to him. Look for Christ, and you will find him and everything else thrown in. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of our parish, we would really appreciate it. You can make a one-time or recurring gift by going to calvarystgeorge.org slash give. Thank you for your support.